Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. I'm uh, delighted to be able to talk about heaven. Um, I've been here a number of times, so many of you know me, and so without any apology about my temperament and who I am, I'm just going to sort of launch into a very Mike type of delivery. Um, I watched a, a movie the other day, and it was, it was Finnish or Swedish. What's the difference? Um, it, was, it was on Netflix. It was, it was weird. It was slow. It was very unusual. It was slow. It went on for a while, and it was slow. Did I mention it was slow? And so it's one of those movies where you watch the first scene, you're like, okay, we'll watch the second scene just to see. And after a while, you're half an hour invested in it, and nothing's happened. And you think, well, you can't do a movie with nothing, so we'll keep watching because something has to happen. An hour goes by, yeah, nothing's happened yet. This is really unusual. And I'd like to say the movie finished, but it it didn't really finish. Finish is not the word you would use. It, It stopped, and the credits rolled, and... I looked at Odell and was like, what on earth was that about? <laughs> Don't know. Nothing was resolved. Nothing made sense. Uh, there didn't really seem to be a, a point to any of it. So by definition, it was both pointless and senseless. Uh, it's pretty no surprise it went straight to Netflix, didn't go to the movie theaters, because I don't think people are going to pay money to watch it, to be quite frank, because we hate that, don't we, as humans? We want to make sense of our lives. We want to have a point. There has to be a purpose. Am I right? And when we don't get resolution, we're deeply disturbed. I am. I want my money back. But I don't think it's just weird sort of art house movies on Netflix which are like this. I think, I'll just be blunt, right, because I can't be anything else. I think every philosophy is actually pointless and senseless, to be honest outside of Christianity. I'm not going to inflict a philosophy lesson on you because some of you may have done philosophy and then I'll look silly. But, but I think of Marxism here. Just take, take one philosophy. I was, I was at a, a meeting uh, down in Otago. I was lecturing there for the semester. And so university town, you just go to everything. It's wonderful. Free lectures, this, that, and the other thing. There was a particular event advertised where a certain person was going to present on a certain topic. doesn't matter what that topic was. And so I was really interested just to go along, to be lost in the crowd, and just hear this perspective from this group. I enter the room, about 20 people, um, they're all in skinny jeans and crushed velvet, I thought that's not quite the profile I thought this group might have, uh, something's unusual, and the guy gives this talk, and it wasn't on anything that was advertised, it was just this shameful plug about how awful Christians are, I'm like, what on earth is this, turns out it's the Marxist group, I mean, I thought Marxism died out years ago, I mean, How many, literally, how many millions of people, how many tens of millions of people have to die in the name of Marxism for people to know it's dumb? But of course, this is university, so hey, everything's back on the agenda. Uh, The seats were sitting in a, were arranged in a circle. This guy spoke, and then we had to take a seat. We all had to respond. And so a quick count, I'm 18 out of 20 in this, and they first person stands up, just vitriolic nonsense about Christians. The second person, Christians, Christians, it's like, what the? 
It's just, it was remarkable. And so it gets to me, like the executioner's axe, it's coming round, and I felt this sort of burden. I'm a theologian, I'm a Christian. Um, I have to say something, right? So I stood up and said, I'm a logger. No, that's a joke. Ray Stevens, don't worry. I, st- I-, I felt I got to say something. What could I say in a soundbite that will both get their attention and, and, and might represent you? I know you didn't ask me to represent you, but I felt the burden. I stood up and said, I'm a white, western, middle-aged male who happens to be a theologian. I think I'm the person you most hate in all the world, given what you've said. You're the most intolerant bunch of tolerant people I've ever met. I said, I've got one main problem with Marxists, with you, right? There's no point to it. It doesn't make sense. It's a pointless and senseless philosophy. There will be a great revolution and we will fight against the man, and we will reclaim this one world order only for that to become the new regime that needs to be revolted against, and through cycle and cycle and cycle and cycle of these ridiculous synthesis and, and, and revolution and, and resynthesizing, oh my goodness, it just goes round and round and round and round and round, because you're never happy with whoever's in control. Even when you get in control, one of you isn't happy with the other person. Sounds a bit like church. Uh, until finally there'll be this one world order which they call utopia, where everyone will exist in this utopia. Christians, probably down the back corner somewhere. Christians there, Buddhists, shaman, Satanists, tax reform specialists. And they think all these people are going to keep their opinions to themselves, are going to be happy confined to their corner, and we're going to sing what? Kumbaya in a circle? I said, fat chance. Let me just tell you about us Christians. Wherever you find Christianity, in any part of the world, in any part of the history of the world, wherever there is oppression, we are fighting against it. Yeah? Wherever there is poverty, we don't want to be the ambulance at the bottom. We want to be the fence at the top of the cliff. We are fighting for justice, right? We're on the side of the oppressed. Anyone who is marginalized, we are with them to bring them in. If you think we're going to sit in some corner while people are doing stuff that we don't agree with, you've got another thing coming. I said, we follow and serve a crucified Messiah. Someone who said, I am God in the flesh who, who dared to stand up against the greatest regime in the world at the time the Roman Empire, and he was crucified for it on a cross and rose again, and he told us to take up our cross and follow him, and by God we have, haven't we? You Marxists, you're kidding yourself. You got no point, and it's senseless. Now, this was 20 years ago. Um, This was 20 years ago. I probably wasn't as as articulate as that, but it's my memory, and that's how I choose to remember it. That's what I said. (laughs) The guy leading the group stood up, and he started to engage me in a debate until he realized I was serious. I'm a choleric. He stands up. I'm ready for it. Let's go, you know? Not a fight, because look at me, but a verbal fight, right? And and so he had the good sense to know, okay, let's adjourn. We've got got a lot to do in this meeting. He said, we need to move on. We've got um, posters to, to paint because we're protesting tomorrow. This is not preacher's exaggeration. 
This is what happened. I said to him, what are you protesting? He said, I don't know, we haven't decided yet. (laughs) Pointless and senseless. Compare that to Christianity. Is there a point in Christianity? Does Christianity make sense of the world and our experience? Is there a direction in which we are going? Do we have an end game, people, that can look at Marxists and say, "Mm, that's not very good, look at what we got. We do, don't we? I mean, we know as Christians, we know of all people that life is fragile. We know that. We know that that life comes and life goes, but, but we know something else, don't we? This life is not all there is to life, right? And so how would we, how would you answer the question when people ask, what's the point? How do you make sense of it all? Because we don't have all the answers. God does what we don't, but he does share with us some of it. I think we take some cues from a text like Colossians 3, 1 to 4, reading from the New Living Translation, because you find a translation which you like, right? But this sort of makes sense, I think, to what Paul is talking about. Colossians 3 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and power. Let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not only think about things down here on earth, for you died when Christ died. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your real life, is revealed to the whole world, we will share in his glory. I like that better than Marxism. (laughs) That gives a point. That gives sense to what we're doing. The end game, the point, is that we will dwell with the triune God in a renewed heavens and earth, where this will be our home, and God will make his home with us, and we will flourish for all eternity. What does this mean, though, when we start to scratch beneath the surface? Well, if my straw poll of asking many Christians is anything to go by, not a lot. Because not a lot of people, Christians, church folk, have much idea about what's to come. And so I thought we'd go back into Scripture and see what is God promising? What is God giving to us? What is God giving us a glimpse of to encourage, to inspire, to inflame within us this hope so that we can live this life to the full? So that we can enter the new life and live there to the full? Once when I was here, Reuben said, Mike preaches, by analogy, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. I like, I took that as a good thing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so I took it as a compliment. So when I go to Scripture and we look at what's to come in terms of new heavens, new earth, I see God just flinging stuff at us left and right. It's not a systematic theology. It's not bullet-pointed. It's not a chronological timeline. Don't see that necessarily. But he does give us just all these images, these windows to look through, these doors to walk through. So in whatever time I've got left, I'm just going to throw the stuff at you. I want to convince by overwhelming you because I think that's what God is doing in Scripture. I hope at the end of it, you've got some, some clarity on some points 
But I hope it raises 101 other questions. And I hope you take those questions and as a church, as a community, as families, around your dinner table, large groups, small groups, medium groups, I hope you ask those questions and try and find answers to them. When you do, we're doing theology. When you do, we're being the church. And when we do that, when other people ask us, when our kids ask us, when our friends, our colleagues, the people we play sport with, when our neighbors ask us, what's it all about this Christianity? You don't need a PhD. You just need the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and you've got that. So that's what I'm going to do, all right? Buckle in. Here we go. First image we get, I think, about the afterlife, about the resurrection, about being with Christ in the new creation is rest. The New Testament's full of it. Hebrews particularly is full of it. Rest. Now, you're probably thinking a month in Bali. Maybe going back to Vancouver. (laughs) It is a nice place, isn't it? Well, that's not quite what the Bible means by rest because, well, a month in Bali would be quite good. Two months would be better. I don't want to live there. I don't want to live on a hammock. We'd get, we'd get bored. I need to be doing stuff. I need to have activity. I need to have challenges. So do you because we're human. So when the Bible talks about rest, it doesn't mean inactivity. So what does it mean? Well, when Paul talks about the Christian life now in various places, he says the Christian life now is like a fight. It's like a wrestling match. It's a struggle. Yeah, it's joyous. Yes, it has victory. But let's be honest, people, you know as well as I do, we're in this fight. What are we fighting against? We're fighting classically, right? We're fighting the devil. We're fighting sin. We're fighting the world. We're fighting every impulse within us that doesn't want to do God's will. And to be just completely honest with you, I'm sick of it, aren't you? Every single day, I have to confess my sins. Every day. On my very worst days, I can't think of anything to confess. And I start to think, maybe I didn't sin that day. And I just ask my wife, and I get the full list. (laughs) Aren't you sick of it? You want to do good, but you don't. Isn't this Paul, Romans 7? The things I want to do, I don't do. I can't do. The things I, I, I do, I don't want to do. I am a wretched person. That's not the whole story, but isn't it part of it? where you're in the struggle, you're in the fight. And it's tiring people. Not only am I tired of my sin, to be quite blunt, I'm sick of your sin. When you do stuff to me, when you do stuff to other people, when we turn the TV on, watch the news, when we open the newspaper, when we look at what's happening in the world, does, not, does, does it not get you down? And, and then we need a bigger category than sin, so we call this evil. There's a lot of evil in the world. We know that, right? And it wears us down. The first image of the afterlife is rest, not inactivity. It means the fight is over. That sin nature's gone. My sin, your sin, evil is obliterated. It's confined. It's put somewhere else. That's another sermon for another time, but it's gone. Jesus Christ is the judge of all, and he makes all things new, and we will wake up, and we will say, I want to do your will, Lord, and we will be able to do it, and we'll get to the end of the day, and we'll look back, and we did do it, 
And, and the master will say to us, as he said, when we entered heaven, he'll say each day, well done, good and faithful servant. We're just waiting for the, yep, yeah, but. No, no, well done. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that? Rest. We can't wait. So what were we doing in this restful ceasing to struggle against sin? Because that will be gone. What will we be doing there? Because we will have so much energy, right? The next image we're given is we will worship. Every image of the afterlife for Christians is centered around God, around the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We will be able perfectly to obey the Father. We will be able perfectly to have fellowship in the Spirit. We will, we will be, be able to perfectly enjoy, give, and receive the grace of the triune God. We won't be able to sin. We'll only be able to do what God wants, and what God wants is what we really want. And now we struggle, then we won't. We'll be worshiping. Don't think, this is a wonderful church. Don't think it'll be a church service for, for the next five million millennia, as good as church services are. These are just partial glimpses. There will be singing, we're told that. There will be creativity, we're told that. There will be worship of all kinds and sorts. I was preaching this at a church once. After the service, it's not the, not the first time, I'm down the back. As I, as I will be today, if you want to have a chat, come. This guy, immediately, service stops, start marching towards me. I was like, here we go, this is good. Again, I'm a choleric, yeah? He goes, what was the point of that sermon? Like, well, that's a disgruntled congregant, isn't it? Uh, I said, what do you mean? What do you want people going home to think after that talk? I said, well, I think it was pretty clear, actually. I said it a hundred times. I want people to go out that door. I want you to go out that door wanting to go to heaven when you die. He goes, I thought that was your point. He goes, and because of what you said, I do not want to go there. I'm not a pastor. I'm a theologian. I said, what exactly did I say that makes you not want to go there? You said in there, in the eternity, in the resurrection, the new heavens and new earth will have, will have this restful experience where we will worship God and we can't do anything but worship God because there's no sin. So we'll only be focused toward God and we'll only ever be able to do what God wants. It's like, yeah, A plus, right? This is a good student. He goes, I don't want to do that. And so, wow. So I said to him, you can test me here. In a rare moment, I think of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I said to him, well, you're obviously not a Christian. He let them allow to say that. Because you can't be a Christian if that does not thrill your soul. Because already now, what are we doing? We're trying to worship God. What brings us into Christianity is worship of God. What keeps us in Christianity is worship of God. If, if thinking and knowing that we're going to worship God for all eternity, we're going to be in His presence and not be consumed. If that doesn't thrill you, come see Reuben afterwards because you're not a Christian. Spray and walk away, right? <laughs> I love all these weird stories in Scripture which we're not quite sure what to do with. Moses is on the mountain. He spends time with God getting the law. He comes down from the mount, and what's weird about him? Can you remember? He's glowing. What? 
he's literally glowing. And some wag at the back there says, it is my eyes, put a bag over your head. So they do. They get a bag, they cut some eyes out. It's the first Halloween. Is this just some mythological nonsense that we're embarrassed about as Christians? Well, no, because throughout Scripture, God is always sort of referred to repeatedly because the words fail us as light, purity, luminous, so, so bright we can't, we can't even look on him, so bright that when Moses is in his presence, his DNA starts to glow. And that's not the only time, Jesus, the transfiguration and other stuff. In eternity, in the resurrection, we'll be given bodies that 1 Corinthians 15 says are, are physical, they are physical bodies, but they are so completely infused with the Holy Spirit that we can stand in the presence of the triune God and worship and not be consumed and certainly not have to put bags over our heads. Worship. That doesn't thrill you. You've got issues. <laughs> we will be working in the afterlife. It's the next image we're given. We'll be given jobs to do. Almost, almost, test me on this, almost every single time when Paul says, you must run the race so to win, you must fight the good fight, you must endure to the end, you must persevere, what's the reason he gives? Almost every, I think it's every single time, I'm gonna just, you know, almost every single time he gives a reason. Do you know what it is? Not rhetorical, anyone? Why? Why should we strive for that? Why should we persevere? Why should we endure? What's, what's the reason he gives? No one's bold enough? You will be rewarded. Well, that sounds very selfish. Well, let's just think about that. I've got two children. That, it makes no economic sense to have children, does it? It often makes no psychological sense to have children. My time's gone. My energy's gone. My money's gone. <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, having children is illogical, right? Imagine the situation, so why do we do it? Imagine a hypothetical country that says, if you have a child and you look after them, when they turn 21, we give you a million dollars. Let's say there's some weird government that would do that. You can imagine, can't you, in that thought experiment, that there would be people that would have children in order to get the reward, yeah? We will have children, not because we want children, not because we really want them and love them, but what we want is the million bucks, and we might have six or 12. Do you get it? So when God says, through, through Paul, you need to fight the good fight, keep in the wrestle, you need to enjoy, you need to persevere, you need to keep that faith and courage and keep going so that you will get a reward. The reward can't be different than the activity. Does that make sense? Having children, what's the reward? Having children! <laughs> knowing who they are, having that relationship of love with them, that give and take, and it is worth, isn't it? It is worth the financial loss. In fact, you don't even, well, no, sometimes you calculate it. but you. <laughs> So the rewards we're promised in Scripture, what are they? What are these rewards we're getting to know? These crowns, metaphorically, these jewels in the crown. It can't be money. That's just ridiculous. That's mercenary. It, it can't be status. We already know that Christ takes the lowest place and tells us to follow. It, it, it can't be anything other than, I think, what we already have is Christ and the opportunity to serve Him more. So the ones who serve Him the most now for the right motives 
the ones who joyously give of themselves and all they have will be given opportunity in the afterlife to keep doing that more and more and more. Because as we serve God, as we work for God, as we do good works motivated because we love Him, as the Spirit possesses us and turns us by the fruit of the Spirit into Christ-like creatures who want to obey the Father, who want to speak the Father's words, who want to point to Him, that is our greatest joy in life. And that is our greatest joy in the afterlife. The promise here is not hierarchy. The promise here is that you'll be given so many more opportunities to serve and work for the triune God without sin, without hindrance, what would that look like? Well, what does it look like now? When God flings into creation just a profundity of colors and tastes and temperaments and cultures and language the arts, the humanities, the sciences. This is all good stuff. This is all God's idea. This is all part of creation that's going to be renewed. So I often say, because we try and use the worst case example here, I have offended because I will, what will lawyers be doing? And so I've had a few come up afterwards when I've been, what will we be doing? I said, well, you won't be litigating. We know that, right? Because that's gone. But when you boil it all down, if, if someone's a lawyer and they love to be a lawyer and they go into that vocation willingly and they stay in it willingly, what do they do at the end of the day? They bring order out of chaos, don't they? When you boil it down, well, in the new creation, it's not that it'll be chaotic in a fallen way, but there'll still be things to be ordered. There'll be work to do. There'll be creation to inhabit. We become these priests of all creation. We are now and we will continue to be then. What about doctors? What about nurses? What about teachers? What about engineers? What about artists? I think all of those impulses, if you're in those vocations because you love it, because there's something within you that wants to do it, that'll be carried through into the new creation. Because everything good that God puts here, and remember the creation story? The first day, it's good. The second day, he forms and fills, and it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. The sixth day, male and female, they're very good. Good for what? Gardening? Well, for some of you, because you love it. I don't want to be gardening. Good to become creatures that will inhabit this renewed creation where the new Jerusalem comes down and makes its home here in this world where we become these Christ-like creatures who can become priests of all creation. I think that's staggering. So if you like art now, you're going to love it then. If you like engineering now, you're going to love it then. Everything good now will be carried through into the afterlife. What does this mean? It's not pie in the sky when we die. It's cake on the plate while we wait. Because you bring that back into the... I, I wish I invented that. I didn't. Yeah, we bring that back into the present, and then that gives meaning to what we do now. It's the whole point. So every single time in the history of Christianity, when Christians get persecuted, what is the doctrine? What is the theology? What is the teaching they immediately go to? Every single time. 
eschatology, things to come, the afterlife, because it gives us hope now. It's not just hypothetical. So if telling that Christ is Lord, he really tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to be one of those that does that now. And that's why I'm a Christian. I want to get as many people into the church now because it does not say in that text that at the end of time, people will confess Christ willingly. Does it? I don't think many will. He will rule with an iron scepter as one of the images. It's too late. He's come. He's judged. It's undeniable who he is. That doesn't mean universalism. So we've got work to do now. When suffering comes, it's awful. It's a tragedy. We acknowledge that. Absolutely. In fact, more than all people. But we also have hope. This idea in Christianity is not, I hope tomorrow it won't rain. Oh, I hope Jesus Christ will come back again. That means no faith. No hope in Christianity is the exact opposite. What we know will one day be true, we currently believe and live into. Hope. We live in a country which has the highest rate of suicide for, for young adults and teenagers in the OECD, right? We're also one of the most secular countries in the world. Secular, living life without reference to a personal God. Are these things related? They have to be, I think. When we come into church, not this church, I mean church, the body of Christ, when we evacuate talking about the afterlife, because it might be controversial, because we might disagree, when we stop talking about what's to come, and we focus everything on here and now as if this was the final reality, when people experience death and sickness, relationship breakups, financial difficulties, and all the other things now, they feel like they've been ripped off. They feel like the rug's pulled from underneath their feet. They feel like it's, it's a sham. This Christianity has no point. They have no, no hope. Why aren't we, the church, who has a glimpse into what's going to come, we're going to be feasting, we're going to be playing, we're going to be worshipping, we're going to be working, we're going to be resting. When we've got a window into that, why would we not talk about that now? Now, there's no one-to-one -one solutions to anything, I know that. But I think we've got an opportunity as a church to talk about hope in a hopeless culture. I wonder whether that's the first message we might have in a secular society and then we get to talk about Jesus, who is the center of that hope. And then we get to talk about the cross, the mechanism by which that becomes a reality. Does that make some sense? But first we need to know in part what's coming, and Christ has given that information. And so uh, my, my time's running out. We're resting, we're working, we're worshiping. We're cultivating culture. Uh, we could go and talk a lot more about these things, $25 at the back of the church. By my, hmm. I need to finish. I want to finish with two stories, if I can. The first is, is a, a rock band. doesn't matter who it was. Um, no, it doesn't matter. But a few years ago, they put out a, a music video, which was an hour long. And at the center of it was a, a song with the unusual title, August 7, 415. It was the song and the video was dedicated to Catherine Corzelius, 
a young girl who was the victim of a hit and run. It was one of their roadies' daughters, and she died. And they put out this video. It has A-list actors in it. It's well-produced. It was all over uh, at the time, every social media outlet. Uh, August 7, 4.15. This is how the chorus goes. I, I know tonight that there's an angel up on heaven's high hill, and no one there can hurt you, baby. No one ever will. Somewhere, someone's conscience is like a burning bed. The flames are all around you. How are you going to sleep again? Whatever that means. Tell me it was just a dream. August 7, 415. God closed his eyes and the world got mean. August 7, 415. Did God close his eyes? Non-Christian band. In the music video for a torturous hour. It's the story of these parents of this, fictitious, but the, the parents of this child who's died. The, the woman, the, the mother, she just goes into depression, as you would. She starts journaling, but it's, it's, not a, it's not a useful journal. It's just scribbling the same word, why, why, why. The husband trying to get next to her, but she closes him out. He, he's frustrated. He doesn't know what to do. She eventually turns on him. You should have been there. You should have saved her. You should have protected her. It's, who else do you blame? It's your fault. How can he help her? The music video, I'd like to say it finishes, but it doesn't. It just stops. It's depressing. It's hopeless. August 7, 4.15, God closed his eyes and the world got mean. That's not my theology. I want to compare that with a true story, the story of another couple who, who reflected on, on their experience. Marshall and his wife. It's a Christian couple. They ask, why would God allow their child to live for two minutes, and then die. Their daughter died of a chromosome abnormality. Uh, their son, sorry, died of a chromosome abnormality. How could God do that? Where, where could they make sense of this tragedy? They too are depressed. They too suffer. They too feel the loss. Of course they do. They too have questions. Their prayers hit the roof. They don't want to come and sing worship songs. We get it. We know it. We've been there. But they're Christians, so where do they turn? They turn to God. Where were you? Sounds very biblical, doesn't it? Where were you when this happened? You should have protected him. You sh and we've got a whole psalm book in our Bibles that, that looks to us like God doesn't mind us asking him these things. This is what they say. As far as I was concerned, this was a design flaw, says Marshall, the husband. The designer was directly responsible. The doctor advised them to abort the baby when the problem was diagnosed and in an amazing testimony of faith. The wife, Susan, responded. She said, we believe God is the giver and taker of life. If the only opportunity I have to know this child is in my womb, I don't want to cut that time short. If the only world he is to know is the womb, I want that world to be as safe as I could possibly make it. They left the medical center stunned. Susan said to her husband, pregnancy is hard enough when you know you're going to leave the hospital with a baby. I don't know how I can go through this knowing I won't have a child to hold. 
The parents prayed to God for healing. They also prayed to God that if it was at all possible, would he allow the baby to at least experience the breath of life? And that prayer was answered. The baby was born. They saw its chest rise and fall, the breath of life, before he turned blue and passed away. Do you have a name for the baby? Asked the nurse. Toby, Susan replied. A biblical name, short for Tobiah, God is faithful. I've told this story hundreds of times. I still cry. Tobiah, God is faithful. I don't know if I could do that. But I'm so glad they did to encourage me. Three months later, an elder daughter also died. Just short of her second birthday, she also was severely disabled. In desperation and agony and helplessness, Marshall and Susan turned to Scripture because where else could you turn? Who else has the words of life? Who else knows how to make sense of tragedy? Who else can give meaning to this? And when they turned to Scripture, they found heaven, heaven, heaven everywhere. They saw that heaven is a place of intense activity, of work and worship. They saw that heaven is our home, that Jesus is preparing for those who love him. Marshall said, what's clear is that heaven will be a place of active duty. Even after the ultimate spiritual battle is over, he said, our responsibilities continue. He said, I can't be specific about how we will assist in reigning with Christ, but those tasks sound like they have more significance than most careers we pursue in our lifetimes. Could it be, says Marshall, that when I finally start the most significant service of my life, I will find that this is that for which I was truly created for. I may find I was created not for what I would accomplish simply in this life, but for the role I will fulfill in the next. And then he asks this question. Why did God create a child to live for two minutes? His reply, my reply, hopefully it's our reply. He didn't. He didn't. He created Toby for eternity. He created each of us for eternity. He created every man, woman, and child for eternity. And we may be surprised to find our true calling, which always seemed just a little out of reach here on earth, realized there. Do you remember Paul in Philippians 1? I'm hard-pressed, says Paul, from both directions, having this desire to depart and be there with Christ. Because that is very much better, says Paul. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. And then prior to that, it's his T-shirt, right? His bumper sticker. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I so want to say that. I believe that. Lord, help me in my unbelief. The great American pastor, spiritual director, once Regent College lecturer, Eugene Peterson commented once that amen is the last word in worship. It is, he said, the worshiping affirmation to the God who affirms us. It's appropriate then that amen should be the final word in a sermon on heaven. 
because heaven is the ultimate place of worship where God is most fully God and you and I will be most fully ourselves. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.